Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by David French, Jonah Goldberg, and Steve Hayes. Plenty to talk about today. The latest in Ukraine. What's going on with the Iran deal now and the Biden administration's foreign policy takes shape? And lastly, of course, we will talk about inflation, the Federal Reserve's decision on interest rates, and the failure of another Biden nominee, thanks to Joe Manchin. Ukraine. Stuck. I think things are stuck. Um, Lots of reporting over the past 48 hours about the inability of Russia to move forward toward Kiev. Um, More details about the difficulty the Russian military is having both taking and keeping cities, towns that it's targeting. And also uh, keeping morale high, increasing number of stories over the last couple of days about potential morale po- problems um, associated with how Russia went into the war and how many Russians have been killed in the war. And I, I think, you know, there, there's been um, heard more optimism in the past couple of days about the possibility that Ukraine could, quote unquote, win the war militarily. That feels a bit premature to me, given what we know Vladimir Putin can do and and I think what we we believe he's willing to do. Um, But certainly this has been another bad week for Russia. David, an international court found Vladimir Putin guilty, at least preliminarily, of war crimes related to targeting civilians in Ukraine. I'm curious if you can put this in some context. You know, there's been Um, a simmering debate over international law for the last 20, well, maybe 50 years in terms of what it is. Is it real? Is it effective? And on the one hand, you know, Joe Biden has now called Vladimir Putin a war criminal and he has some of the receipts to back that up. On the other hand, the court held that Vladimir Putin was to stop his invasion of Ukraine immediately, which obviously will have no effect. So what are we supposed to think about international law at this point? Yeah, international law is relevant only to the extent that it is enforceable. And it's enforceable only to the extent that somebody has the will to enforce it. So uh, the United States self-polices in a large, to a large degree on its adherence to international law. So if you're talking about rules of engagement that American forces um, comply with in our own conflicts, those rules of engagement are influenced by international law. They actually go beyond international law of armed conflict and the restrictions they place on our forces. But what, how is that policed? Why is that policed? It's because we self-police. Now, it does not mean that under the current in the current world that international law is completely irrelevant unless an, a, a nation self-polices. In fact, I've worked in the past with um, on issues involving... Israel, where uh, allegations of war crimes against Israeli officers and Israeli and the Israeli military are directly relevant to these members of the Israeli military, because if they travel outside of Israel into a country that um, would enforce some of these international, say, the, the edicts of the International Criminal Court, they could be in real jeopardy. So there is a way in which international law is um, has relevance, but it has to be enforced and it's just not enforced at scale in a way that is relevant to Russia's military operation. It does, however, matter to the extent that Western powers use it as a norm that regulates the way they interact with Russia. For example, a sanctions regime. regime. Or, for example, uh, would they in the future, if they had the ability, arrest Vladimir Putin? Uh, maybe, possibly. Um, so it's the way I would put it is it is far, far less relevant than the battlefield outcome, but it does matter to the extent that Western, uh, nations use the norms of international law to govern their actual policy. So it's, it's somewhere in this gray area between 
oh please, symbolic nothing. It's sort of the uh it's sort of the legal version of putting a Ukraine flag in your Twitter bio. Um and real teeth. It's there is it's in between there because to very powerful countries, these international norms matter and dictate policy to some degree, if if that answers your question. Jonah, the Kremlin put out a statement. We hear and see statements that are actually personal insults to President Putin. Given such irritability from Mr. Biden, his fatigue and sometimes forgetfulness, fatigue that leads to aggressive statements, we will not make harsh statements so as not to cause more aggression. I read that and I see the the little digs they're trying to make, right, on the pressure points of American domestic politics and our fissures. And it reminds me so much of, um, you know, how much around Trayvon Martin or Black Lives Matter was actually paid for and pushed by Russian GRU officers. It is not, by the way, to minimize um, any of the people who sincerely were protesting about that. But the Russians were certainly trying to add fuel to that fire. And here we have them, um, I mean, not subtly, right? Right. suggesting adding fuel to the fire of Biden's competence uh, because Biden called him a war criminal of all the things to criticize Biden for calling him a war criminal. I would think you are fine with. Yeah. So I am. Um, <laughs> um, so first of all, it, it, it's worth pointing out that Putin's a former KGB guy and uh, it used to be verboten to point this out, but now it is sort of, it's gotten this new lease on life in part because of all the Russia collusion chatter in 2016 the kgb the russians spent an enormous amount of money fomenting racial uh discord in the united states in the 1960s um there were they wanted uh various black power outfits to supplant martin luther king they um you know and it was funny it was like used to never be able to say that there was any relationship between sort of the hardcore black left and the kgb and now there are all these liberal websites in the last five years who have written about it. It was a subplot of the first season of the Americans. It's, I think it's just sort of fascinating culturally how people are okay to say it now. That said, beyond that though, look, I mean, uh, I think it was, I mean, I, I, I agree with David's take on the, the legalities of it as a matter of foreign policy. I'm not sure it was good for Biden to say this. It was objectively true. It is objectively true that Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. But if the concern is that a weakened, cornered, no exit uh, Vladimir Putin is more dangerous for Ukraine and for the world, um, announcing that he's a war criminal sends a signal like his only exit is going to be in the dock at The Hague, which is not where Putin's going to voluntarily go. And it creates a whole cascade of policies, both diplomatic and legal, when the president of the United States and then his subalterns say that uh, the president of Russia is a war criminal. And I would be okay with it if this had was the product of a strategy. But Biden clearly was just responding off the cuff to somebody shouting a question at him. And then all of a sudden, the administration has to run in with the brooms behind the elephant and change their policy, at least their rhetorical policy, to sort of ma- make it policy. And that's not a way to handle something like this. Um, I do think that the Russians are clearly, you know, I mean, it's, there's, it's no, as Russians used to say in, in good Marxist fashion, fashion, it is no coincidence uh, that Tucker Carlson and Madison Cawthorn are on, on Russian TV. And it is no coincidence that Vladimir Putin is echoing a lot of the sort of talking points of the disgruntled if not necessarily pro-Putin, then certainly anti-anti-Putin right these days because he wants to create discord here. I just think the Russians have so misread where the West is on all of this stuff, um, almost as badly as they misread the military realities, that it's just noise right now and really will have no major effect except maybe to change Tucker's opening monologue. I think (laughs) I would agree with you if I thought the United States could play a different role in this conflict Uh, similar to what the Israelis are playing, trying to pressure each side towards ceasefire to protect lives. But 
America, we're, we're in too deep with the Russians in terms of our relationship. There's too much history. So we can't play that role that the Israelis are playing. So in that sense, um, I, you know, I think Biden can kind of say whatever he wants with little effect on how this is going to shake out because the Russians aren't confused that we're neutral, that we are, you know, I don't, for lack of a better word, like acting in good faith toward them when it comes to what we think they should do vis-a-vis Ukraine. Steve, I've had a question I've wanted to ask you for uh, a while now. Looking back, I know that you don't like the way we got out of Afghanistan. Nobody likes the way we got out of Afghanistan. However, by getting out of Afghanistan when we did, uh, two things. One, it prevented Russia from retaliating against the United States on different, you know, turf um, against our military assets who would have been there. Two, it's freed up resources, special forces resources, et cetera, that um, are most likely in Ukraine at this point. I'm curious what you think of that argument that we're now hearing from uh, people who are now trying to defend Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, despite, you know, the American people wanted to get out of Afghanistan. Trump wanted to get out of Afghanistan. Biden wanted to get out of Afghanistan. Uh, they didn't want, again, not the how, not how we did it, but the only people who didn't were the military. I'm curious how you would weigh all of that in hindsight with the benefit of hindsight at this point. Yeah, well, I don't buy that we've reduced our targets necessarily because we have forces elsewhere in Europe. We have forces pretty close to Ukraine. So if Vladimir Putin wanted to mess with us in that way, which would certainly be escalating what he's doing, he's in a position to do it. And, and while we have, I think, you know, we have, let's say, an active CIA presence uh, on the ground in in Ukraine, certainly um, Ground Branch and 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 others, uh, I you know we, there's no indication that we have active U.S. troops fighting in Ukraine at this point. Um, so I don't, I guess I don't buy the argument from Biden defenders that Afghanistan may have ultimately been a net plus. And I think the 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 better case is that doing what we did in Afghanistan signaled Joe Biden's unwillingness to to stick out tough situations. And, you know, if, if you if you think about what that signaled to Vladimir Putin, um, Biden made very clear, I don't want to fight a war. I'm, I'm done fighting wars. I'm not I'm not doing this. And you, you have to look at it, I think, in the context of the other decisions that Biden had made with respect to Russia, um, early decision on s- start extension. Um, decision on Nord Stream 2 to open up that that pipeline. Um, these are things that I think Vladimir Putin had to be seeing um, in the context of sort of a long recent U.S. history of um, not following through on on threats, on, on looking for additional opportunities to reset with Russia whether we're talking about George W. Bush and the and the seeing in Putin's soul or the actual Russian reset with Hillary Clinton or uh, our failure to, to really punish Russia after 2008 in Georgia, 2014 in Ukraine, then you have the Biden administration come in and make a series of friendly moves or moves that I think Vladimir Putin could be perceived as friendly, even if, you know, they were they were undertaken for different reasons. And then on top of all of that, you see the U.S. withdraw f- from Afghanistan. You see its its disastrous uh, consequences, um, and I think Putin had to say, "Sort of na- now's the time," and he did, and, and that's what he did. Uh, just one quick point on on um, what you said, uh, what you and Jonah were saying. I mean, I, I I take Jonah's point on the war criminal rhetoric, but but my main critique of the Biden administration in this moment is that we're, we have too little of that kind of clarity. I mean, of course, Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. His, his, his troops are killing people indiscriminately on the ground. They're bombing, uh, buildings marked with children on the top of them. There's an increasingly persuasive case, I think, to be made that they're actually targeting civilians, that it's not actually indiscriminate, that in fact, this is part of the strategy Absolutely, Vladimir Putin is a war criminal, and I would hate to think that Joe Biden would dance around that fact. I mean, it's clear that Putin is a war criminal. I understand the implications of Biden articulating that fact, but I think it would have looked even dumber if he didn't say it. The complicating factor to me 
is you, you look at what Biden is doing with Russia across the table on the Iran deal. And you say, well, okay, are we negotiating with a, a war criminal? Are we, are we providing, uh, outsourcing our Iran negotiations to a war criminal or the, the willingness of the State Department to talk to Russia about climate uh, in a diplomatic way? As we've said before, they're not treating Russia like a pariah state. They're not treating Russia like a state that's being led by a war criminal. Yeah, Steve, I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. My only point is, is that if you have a, if you have a diplomatic, strategic, legal plan to treat Vladimir Putin as a war criminal, then do that. But if you have a plan not to do that, if you don't want to call him a war criminal, and then because Joe Biden can't resist answering a question uh, and sounding, you know, impressive, blurts it out unintentionally, that's not reassuring. Right. I mean, of course, he's a Putin's a war criminal. I don't dispute that. And I'm fine with the United States having a policy of treating him like a war criminal. I'm not fine with the Biden administration playing catch up with Joe Biden's mouth because he accidentally called him a war criminal against their own internal policies. Because as to your point, the idea that Biden wants to be negotiating with Iran, with someone he's just called a war criminal is just not great politics. And so like, I, it's so clear to me that they did not intend to, but then Blinken has to say, of course, you know, Biden, the president is right. He's a war criminal and blundering into the policy of treating him like a war criminal is less desirable to me than, um, doing it or not doing it on purpose. David, Ukrainian president Zelensky spoke to Congress this week. Did it make any difference? Did anything change? Uh, I would say, did it, well, did it make any difference? That's, is it making a difference to solidify support that was already really solid? <laughs> I think, I think it just reaffirmed, um, that supporting Ukraine in this war is decisively, decisively in the mainstream of American politics. And that a lot of the rhetoric that we're seeing online from parts of the right, which it's not exactly pro-Putin. It is certainly somewhat anti-Ukraine or anti-Zelensky or anti-anti-Putin or uh, wearing out Vladimir uh, Volodymyr Zelensky for calling for a no-fly zone. It's a, There is a weird level of discourse on the right that if all you do is look on Twitter, you would think the right is extremely divided uh, about what to do about Ukraine. But then if you look at the actions in Congress, uh, or it's the not really, or the polls, <laughs> it's not really divided at all. Um, now, it is true, and some of the polling shows that uh, Republican support for Russia is much lower outright than the Democratic support. Republicans are much more likely to say that they support neither, although one side, uh, actual support for Russia is only about 5%. There was a YouGov poll that put Republican support for Russia at 57%, 28% support for neither, 5% support for Russia. Um, but yeah, the what it showed, I think, was the overwhelming and reaffirmed that overwhelming support. And the vote to remove most favored nation trade status from Russia was 424 to 8. Um, the 8 were Republicans, but it's only 8. <laughs> so What I was do the think reasoning for the 8? I think it varies. Um, you know, you had uh, you had some who have are uh, who are obstinate against any sort of further uh, response against Russia that would maybe potentially harm the U.S. economy. Um, and then, you know, Chip Roy is always kind of a wild card. He kind of has his own reasons for what he does. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene's position was because vests have no sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, did he make a difference? I think it all is reaffirming. It's all just reaffirming. Every every bit of news from overseas from when what we're seeing happen to Mariupol is reaffirming. What we're seeing happen outside of Kiev or the missile strikes that were reported in, uh, out in Lviv, all of that's reaffirms, and which is important, which is important because we know that uh, support for strong action can flag over time. Um so yeah, that was that was worth. It was absolutely worth doing. It wasn't a game changer. Uh, the fundamental American policy is unchanged. 
David, you mentioned polling, and yesterday on Advisory Opinions, you and I discussed uh, evolutionary biology. And um, in line with that, I am surprised we haven't seen a poll on what female Americans think of President Zelensky. (laughs) (laughs) Does one not exist? Uh, Not that I've seen. And look, I, I am making a light point, yes, but in a conversation that frankly, the country has been having about masculinity for the last 10 years, there is a real point there too. I would be right. curious to see whether women find President Zelensky attractive in whatever way they'd want to ask the question, because my hunch is the answer is yes, and that that um, should inform what we think about masculinity, toxic masculinity, uh, et cetera. Well, and you know, I'm so glad you raised that because- <laughs> <laughs> this actually circles back to an interesting discussion that that Jonah wrote about, uh, Charlie Cook wrote about, this polling question about what would I do if America uh, was invaded? And well, actually, a majority of- the question right was, what would you do if um, you were in a similar position to the Ukrainians? Right, which right. I have heard from people can be interpreted different ways. Okay, I read it as basically, Same. what would you do if America was invaded? And a majority of Republicans said that they would fight and not leave. And a uh, what was it? Only about forty percent, Jonah, of Democrats said that they would fight and not leave. And that caused a a lot of discussion. And I, this is what at one point I think that you made. Nobody knows till it happens. Nobody knows till it happens. And I, when you look at Putin and Zelensky, and in fact, one of the things that. You know, it's almost a cliche. You see it so much that often the guy who postures the most is the one who's least sort of equipped emotionally and psychologically for when things really get real. And there's this really funny side-by-side picture of Vladimir Putin on uh, on horseback. Do you remember that famous Vladimir oh, yes. Putin? He's on horseback, shirtless, shirtless, just exuding all of his manhood. And then right next to it is the Zelensky a Beyonce parody dance that he did <laughs> where he's in high heels and leather, you know, and which one of these people fast forward a few years, which one of these people is Churchillian. It really is an interesting and sober reminder that you just don't know until the bullets start flying. You can think, you know, you can imagine that, you know, how people will react, but you just don't know. and. That's in in many ways what's made Zelensky all the more impressive is how unanticipated it was. Indeed. Uh, let's let's take a larger frame here for a second, Jonah. We've now we're a year and some change into the Biden administration. While Ukraine and Russia are certainly dominating the headlines, all the headlines, but particularly foreign policy related headlines. Um is are we starting to see an emerging Biden foreign policy if you combine Afghanistan with Russia with what's going on with the Iran nuclear deal what what is the through line that you can draw for us I know there's this great I think it's by what's his name um oh gosh he was the sort of political he was like the Karl Rove for FDR he was the head of the postal service but he was also like his campaign manager and he has this great Ickies, line, right? Harold no, Ickies? not Ickies. Um, like oh. Mosley. Mo- oh, God, it's going to oh, come okay. to me after this thing. Uh, Raymond Moley. Okay. I think that's it. Anyway, he has this great line where he says um, to think that there was a coherent theme um, to the new deal would be like thinking the collection of old shoes, stuffed snakes, um, random pillows, and, and and outdated beach furniture in your garage were put there by a decorator. And um, I think that there is not a major strategic theme to uh, not, not at least not one that holds for the Biden administration in part because there have been, it's been a mixed bag, right? I mean, I think his handling of NATO and handling of, of Ukraine deserves fairly high marks with some criticisms to be sure. His handling of Afghanistan is an F at best. Um, but part of, I think part of the problem is, is that Biden and his team, particularly John Kerry, who's the climate schnorr, um, 
is uh is so obsessed with this old version of liberal internationalism and foreign policy that basically sees diplomacy as an ends rather than a means right i mean like allies are important because of what they help us do not just to have them right uh, diplomacy is important because of what it helps us do not just because talking is its own reward and there is this ethos in a big chunk of the liberal internationalist foreign policy establishment that thinks it would be better to be um wrong in a big group than right alone and um <laughs> And and the and you see it infecting all sorts of things, right? John Kerry speaks eloquently as best John Kerry can in his sort of stentorian senator shtick, um, talking about delinking climate change from all the other things, and that's great for him, right? Because it's like that's his portfolio. But this notion that the Russians or the Iranians or the Chinese delink climate change from their other foreign policy goals is just sort of ridiculous and ditto on a whole bunch of other fronts. And so, um, I, I honestly, you know, like it drives me crazy. The stated reason why we got out of Afghanistan was because of this reset to deal with uh, traditional great power rivalries in the region. And I know I'm a broken record on this, but, and I'm no expert on foreign policy and military stuff, but it seems to me to have a base right in the middle of the where the contest of all these great powers are would have been a nice thing to have in terms of being able to project power and all that. But they pulled us out of, you know, Bagram. They got rid of that base, which is a huge asset. And they have yet to figure out how to actually do great power politics. They're very fortunate in a purely political sense to have Ukraine thrust an issue set on them that they're actually good at, which is getting the Europeans to see their own self-interest and standing up. But I, 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 I find no theme in the pudding yet. Steve theme in the pudding. Yeah. So I think what, what the Biden, Biden administration supporters would tell you and, and officials would tell you is they came in with a primary goal of reestablishing multilateralism and rebuilding our relations with traditional allies because they had been you know, either neglected or diminished as a result of the Trump presidency. And, and I would include in that NATO and certainly our, our Western European allies, you saw early uh, overtures to, to Germany and other traditional allies, and that that's what they were doing, was re-elevating multilateralism, making clear that, that America was a good partner on these things, was a good coalition uh, partner in, in these broader uh, alliances and broader friendships, both on a bilateral and multilateral basis. Um, and I think there's a justification for doing that. You can understand why they came in with that mentality. I think, unfortunately, what we've seen is we've seen it um, sort of take precedence over what are sort of bigger issues, both in terms of their practical effects on U.S. security interests and in terms of their uh, long-term uh, effects, both symbolic and real world, in terms of the United States standing in the world as as a superpower, and I, obviously you've seen Afghanistan. You saw this withdrawal. I think the message that sent. We've spent a lot of time talking about the message that 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 sent. Um, I I'm much more critical. I think of the Biden administration on Ukraine than it sounds like the rest of you are. I, I don't give him a ton of credit for what he's done with NATO and what he's done with Europe. We were late on virtually every one of the 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 sanctions regimes that that um, we've imposed that Europe imposed first. We followed on. Uh, Congress had to drag them to do the Russia oil ban. Um, I think we've sent rhetorically. We've sent very mixed signals. You know, essentially approving. The MIG transfer, not approving the MIG transfer, were obsessed with the idea of escalatory rhetoric or escalatory steps so that we're taking things off of the table again and again and again, which, as I talked about with Eric Edelman, is its own in its, in its own way escalatory. So I think there are sort of problems all around. And then if you look at what we're doing with the Iran deal, and there's a very good Charlotte Lawson piece on the Dispatch website today about this. The Biden administration seems willing to do almost anything to get the deal, which is very reminiscent of the way that the Obama administration approached anything. Iran could do virtually nothing to to stop our determination from getting the deal. It feels 
that way again, including, uh, as I said, using Russia as a treating Russia as a legitimate diplomatic partner in this effort, despite what's going on in Ukraine and in setting aside things that should be hugely problematic. I mean, we're talking about removing the Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps from the list of foreign terrorist organizations um, and, and all that that entails when they are attacking their neighbors. Um, there's no question that the IRGC is still a terrorist entity. You had a, a leading general say that in front of the U.S. Congress within the last week. The Biden administration seems determined to do this. There's new reporting today about a, uh, a just just this morning, Friday morning, about a uh, in a Wall Street Journal piece about a clandestine banking and finance system that Iran used that it basically built and used to circumvent U.S.-led sanctions. Uh, and it, it, according to the article, enabling Tehran to endure the economic siege and giving it leverage in multilateral nuclear talks. Now, that's a problem. If you're talking about lifting sanctions, but a lot of the sanctions were evaded in the first place, you're talking about signing a deal that supposedly includes verification, but you're signing it with a, a nation, a rogue nation that has proved itself not only willing, but pretty capable at evasion, whether you're talking about sanctions, whether you're talking about inspections on the nuclear program. But I think we're likely to end up with a deal. And it seems increasingly clear that it's going to be a bad deal. So I think the Biden administration is uh, sort of a more dovish version of the Obama administration. And that is that is a big problem, in my view. David, last word to you on this. When we look back at the Biden administration, will anything matter except what happens in Ukraine and Russia? Or do you think there can be other foreign policy wins or losses that will affect his overall rating? I mean, barring anything that we don't immediately anticipate, like a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, Ukraine and Russia will be 1A and uh, the possibility of a nuclear Iran would be number two. Um, and, and let me put it this way, Ukraine and Russia will be one, I should say it this way, it'll be one, one A, one B, one C, it'll be two, it'll be three, it'll be four, and then maybe a number five will be what happens with Iran, because look, I think we haven't paid enough attention right now to what's actually happening on the ground militarily in, I know we, we led with it for a bit, but conventional, the Russian conventional forces right now have suffered staggering losses. This is something that is pretty much consensus at this point. I mean, you know, there's going to be how many thousands of Russian soldiers have died? We don't really know. We know it's thousands. How many hundreds of Russian tanks have been destroyed? We don't know exactly, but we know it's been hundreds. Russia has been dealt a conventional military blow, even as it has, it has captured some territory, it has encircled some cities, that it is going to take years to recover from. Years. Uh, I was reading uh, a, an analysis just yesterday that this throws a lot into doubt about Ru Russia's uh, relationships with its allies. Is Russia going to be able to meet its commitments to supply allies with arms that allies have purchased from Russia? Because Russia is going to have to prioritize restocking its own military. Um, and you know, we're going to be able to argue over time how much is the Biden administration, how much credit does the Biden administration deserve, if much at all, for the way in which the Ukrainian military has been prepared to receive the Russian invasion and how it has resp responded to the Russian invasion. There are going to be books written about what is the exact relationship that we've had between the R Ukrainian military and U.S. intelligence services throughout this conflict. But if at the end of the day, present trends continue and NATO is dramatically uh, unified, Russia is dramatic and Russia is dramatically weakened, that's going to overshadow in the real world almost everything else with one exception. And the one exception is if Iran gets nukes. And, and so I think that there is a sort of a, an almost desperate desire to do something to make sure that Iran does not get nukes on our watch. And why, why you would have that desire and almost it'd be a desperate desire and maybe one that you're willing to make concessions to achieve if you've taken military action completely off the table is that we now see 
how limited so many of our options are if our opponent has nuclear weapons. We have dramatically limited options, and that is not something that we ever want to face with Iran. So the Iranian situation is extraordinarily difficult. I tend to agree with Steve, but I also tend we need to acknowledge how difficult this situation is and how difficult the challenge is in blocking Iran's nuclear ambitions. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right, let's switch gears a little. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates for the first time since 2018. Uh, Within hours, Joe Manchin announced that he would not support Joe Biden's pick for the Federal Reserve, Sarah Bloom Raskin, uh, in part or in large part because she wants to consider the effects of climate change on the valuation of assets Um, and Joe Manchin obviously thinking that that was not appropriate at this time and place. Inflation continues apace. The Democrats and the Biden administration trying to pin that to Ukraine and Russia. Republicans, of course, saying that it started before Ukraine and Russia. Ukraine and Russia was a known unknown, if you will, that things could always happen that would accelerate inflation. But look, the Fed raising interest rates to me is politically quite fascinating heading into a midterm Because what it means, um, you know, in the most simplified terms, is that the Fed is trying to slow down the growth of the economy, slow down wage growth, slow down job growth. Um, And yet, how much of what we're seeing really is within the Fed's control when you think about what's driving inflation right now isn't necessarily an overheated economy. It's two years of COVID, supply chain issues, labor shortages that then companies are um, scrambling to solve by raising wages, et cetera. Um, Jonah, we'll start with you. Is the Federal Reserve going to help or hurt Democrats heading into the midterms? <laughs> um, well, there's a, there's a third option, right? Which is be utterly ineffectual either way, which is <laughs> um, also very possible. I mean, look, I, I, I'm... I. I I tried really hard to stay out of the inflation fights because I have friends on all sides of monetary policy and it's all witchcraft to me. (laughs) Um, And uh, that said, the problem with inflation is that once you, it's like a fire, right? Once you have it, like the fire can be burning the curtains and you're like, "Ah, I never really liked the curtain. But then the fire spreads to something that you really don't, that could be super combustible, right? It's, It's really hard to contain. It moves around. And so once you have the psychology of inflation in a society or in an economy, um, the responses from people to economic stimuli tend to be inflationary regardless of what the stimuli are. And then you add in the stuff that you're mentioning about supply chains and um, and oil prices. It's just a hot mess. And like I don't think there's been a worse time to be a central banker anywhere in our lifetimes, because there's just like to, the ability to sort of thread the needle and curtail inflation without triggering a recession, without getting us into stagflation, when there are so many, um, as Sarah, who likes all the fancy words, would say exogenous things going on. Uh, it's it just I think it's nearly impossible. And so uh, I suspect that the Fed will do an okay job. I think Powell sort of gets the problem that he's got, but I don't know that that he can do it on a political timetable before the midterm elections. And, um, and even if he did a fantastic job, I mean, just brilliant, you know, the Tom Brady of federal reserve, you know, actions kind of thing at the end of the day, just the lag time of the inflation we already have is going to be politically poisonous 
and um, and it's going to last. Well, I, I would suspect last into the election, particularly if we can't get the oil prices down and we head into the summer driving season because the pent up demand for Americans to get the hell out of their houses after two and a half years of covid is enormous. And if all of a sudden they're finding that it's almost as expensive to drive as it is to fly, um, people are going to be pissed. And so I think it's a disaster. Steve, is this 1979 or is it something else? Uh, that's a good, that's a good way of framing it. Let me answer this question that, that, um, I think is the right way to think about the question, especially the question you posed, Joan, in terms of the political impact, but also avoid, (laughs) <laughs> allows me, yeah, I was gonna say, allows me to to further yeah. Jonah's dodge mm-hmm. of actually the intricacies <laughs> of monetary policy, because that would be bad for everybody involved, particularly people listening to this. Uh, I got, I was once a, a a panel on special report. Remember that the it was in the context of the Greek Greek debt crisis, and for about a couple days, Cyprus was having serious issues. And and one day we got we sort of got got a heads up on on what uh, we'd be talking about. They didn't tell us what to say, but they just said, "Hey, here are the topics." And the number one topic of the day was Cypriot monetary policy. <laughs> oh <my laughs> like, I I spent six hours studying. I mean, I don't even know, I'm not very good on on U.S. monetary policy, so Cypriot monetary policy was a challenge. I think the bigger risk to the Biden administration. I mean, what Look, if, if inflation is remains bad, the Biden administration will be blamed. The political uh, effects, I think, will come in part because just the reality, people want to be paying more. That'll matter most. But it'll also matter how the Biden administration addressed this. And remember, they told us again and again and again that this was transitory. This wasn't anything to worry about. This wasn't a big deal. You can imagine Republicans in competitive races playing clips from Jen Psaki's press conference where she downplayed concerns about inflation. And this was true sort of across the administration. And I, I think if, you, if you're worried about the, the political effects and you're a Democrat, that's where the concern comes in. You had people like Larry Summers all along sort of ringing alarm bells about what was likely to happen. Republicans, um, you know, saying many of the same things. And it was downplayed and dismissed in a way that I think will will likely boomerang. David, that's all well and good. And I actually think Steve's exactly right, that the Biden administration will get blamed to the near exact extent uh, (laughs) that prices go up with maybe like a 5% add-on of, you know, things they said that were stupid. But I haven't heard Republicans really offer an alternative to what they would be doing right now to address inflation. I've I've heard plenty on gas prices, some of which is nonsensical if you actually work in the energy sector. But set aside the energy independence talking point. Have you heard Republicans or conservatives, for that matter, talk about what they would be doing to address inflation? No, not really. And I think there's a really good reason for that, which is the minute they open their mouth to talk about what they would be doing to address inflation, it's a minute you're not talking about Biden's failure to deal with inflation and the minute you're re- revealing that your solution is probably not super adequate. <laughs> and so there's a really good, just flat out brass tax political reason. And, you know, we, we do this all the time. And it's not that presidents are irrelevant to the economy. It's just that they're not as relevant as we tend to talk about, as we tend to to argue. So if you looked at the pre-pandemic arc of the American economy, what you couldn't really tell on by a lot of measures if you just took the dates off when Trump became president. There was just a, a, a steady increase in employment, there's a steady increase in GDP. There's a steady increase in a lot of economic uh, indicators, and that just kept it was increasing through the end of the Obama administration. It kept increasing. Then, bam, pandemic happens, everything changes. Then the economy reopens, and then the increase takes off again. So, at but at the same time, Obama took credit for every last job created in his presidency. And then here comes Trump and he takes credit for every last job created in his presidency. And so we have this weird world where presidents take credit for everything that they're, well, I guess there's a sort of rough justice to it, right? 
they if they're going to take credit for every good thing that occurs, then they're going to have to accept blame for every bad thing that happens as well. And, uh, you know, the, the Republicans are just doing something that's pretty smart politically, which is keep the focus where the focus should be for their interests, which is on the fact that inflation is going up under Biden. And if they're not talking about that, they're not talking about the right thing from their perspective. So, David, I, I agree with you entirely on the substance of the point. Um, and in fairness, Obama wasn't the only president. You know, it goes back as throughout living memory, presidents taking oh, credit yeah, for job creation. But Obama was an innovator in one regard. And um, I want to bring it up because it is one of my favorite things in rhetorical nonsensory, which is okay. He not only claimed credit for creating jobs, he created he claimed credit for saving jobs. So he would say, "I've saved or created three million jobs," yes. which is approving the negative thing. And so I'd always respond to that every morning: "I do or save five hundred push-ups." <laughs> We'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right. Uh, before we go, Steve, I'm going to start with you on this. Kentucky has four assistant coaches who make more than the St. Peter's head coach. Why? Why? Why are we doing this? Their entire just go budget to David? is $1.5 <laughs> while Kentucky's coach makes $9 million a year. So we had, I mean, look, a 5-12 upset in the men's NCAA bracket isn't unheard of at all. In fact, it's expected. We had two of them last night, though. So, you know, more than usual. But boy, did you watch that? Kentucky St. Peter's game. Wow. I mean, amazing basketball game. I'm, I'm eager to get David's thoughts on it, but what struck me after watching the game was, you know, <laughs> David's typical... head is in his hands. And I just want to be clear to listeners who weren't watching. This was number two, Kentucky, who I'm going to guess David had going into the final four, if not winning the whole thing, going down to number 15, St. Peter's. Steve, please continue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm tempted to call it a David and Goliath uh, upset, but that probably, <laughs> probably further frustrate David. The best part of it was watching Kentucky head coach, the, the highly paid Kentucky head coach, John Calipari, after the game. You know, those are really difficult, inter difficult interviews to give national television anytime your team loses a game, particularly difficult when you lose to a 15 seed and you're Kentucky and you're John Calipari and you've got this this reputation, this track record. And I waited. The right thing to say is pretty clear. The right thing to say is hats off to St. Peter's. They played amazing. And then point out two or three things that St. Peter's did to earn the victory, right? Right. And Calipari, <laughs> it'll be analyzed, I think, for a while. Calipari said something like, well, you know, we had an eight-point lead and we blew it. And I guess that's on me as the coach, but I kept telling the players to shoot the ball and I took them out when they didn't shoot the ball. And that's terrible. And St. Peter's played well, but really Kentucky should have, we should, <laughs> all about Kentucky the whole time. One of the worst answers you can possibly give in a tough situation. 
David, what advice do you think you should have given Kentucky? Because it seems like um, they didn't, uh, you know, the advice that you normally give in this situation is that the team that scores the most points wins the game. (laughs) Maybe they needed more of that in the pregame interviews. I don't know. I mean, look, we're not that far removed from the first ever 116 upset in the entire history of the NCAA. And that was when David UVA, going with the it could have been worse. It could have been worse. <laughs> yep. No. I'm going with this is a harbinger of great things to come because UVA lost 116. And then what happened? UVA won they the They won next year. Yeah. They won next year. So congra- congratulations in advance. For 2023 NCAA national champions, the University of Kentucky Wildcats. That's my takeaway. Uh, so Sarah's lost our audio for some reason. Um, so I'll just sort of <laughs> jump in here and and point out that the fact that a coach for a team makes $9 million a year uh, is evidence how we should have, get rid of college basketball and make it a minor league sport because... It is distorting higher education in every way. Sorry to just throw that out there for you. All right, so uh, we had a, a gremlin of sorts come in, and uh, it was terrible. It carried Sarah off, and we don't know what happened to her, so we got to go deal with that. Um, but she cannot do the normally euphonious and melodic close to... Um, what does euphonious mean? Pleasing to the ear. Oh, like, Eulogy means EU means to like speak well of in a eulogy. It means good. So pleasing to the ear. Oh, Um, okay. uh, So, uh, and Steve had to go do some phone check thing that he does every day. So um, that leaves basically me and David sitting here. Uh, So I'm going to sign off for everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please, if you can, become a a subscriber to the Dispatch. Meanwhile, I'm watching Sarah scream into the camera, (laughs) desperate to have the (laughs) microphone back, doing a full, like, I paid for this microphone, Mr. Breen. All right, so we're out. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Vladimir Putin was found guilty of war criminals, uh, war crimes, sorry. Uh, an international court found Vladimir Putin guilty preliminarily. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.